Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the Healthcare Systems, Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Dr. Steve Thompson of Aberystwyth University. His paper was entitled The Mixed Economy of Care in the South Wales Coalfield, circa 1850-1950. to Well, thanks very much. Um, it's a real pleasure to come to, to Dublin. Um, and to this conference. Um, I'm particularly interested in one of the major themes of this uh, conference, this idea of the mixed economy of care. And that, of course, is an idea that many historians have utilised as a means to conceptualise the welfare and medical system of any country. Uh, It's been used to demonstrate the existence of different providers of welfare and medical services, and has served as a very useful reminder that the state was not the only, nor indeed the main provider of welfare and medical services in the past. Furthermore, the concept has very usefully allowed historians to conceptualise the medical system of a country uh, in its entirety, perhaps as some sort of medical system, rather than have us focus on particular parts of it in isolation. And it encourages, encourages us to consider the ways in which these different parts of the medical system related to each other. In the work that has utilised this concept, however, historians and other writers have emphasised the ways in which the mixed economy of care varied over time and between different states, but perhaps they failed to give attention or sufficient attention to the numerous and fascinating ways in which the mixed economy of care varied within states uh, between different regions. Perhaps we failed to take account of the numerous and fascinating ways in which particular social, economic, political and cultural contexts determined the character of the mixed economy of care in particular regions, uh, different parts of the British Isles or other countries. And so that's another reason why this conference, is, this symposium is particularly uh, welcome. Uh, perhaps greater consideration of the concept as a concept is required and an approach that emphasises regional variation is a good place to start. Well, I think that South Wales offers a a fascinating case study to test ideas about regional variations in the mixed economy of care. Um, This is just a a map of the South Wales coal field with obviously the Bristol Channel down below here. Um, The coal measures marked uh, on the map, as you can see, uh, with the the major towns in the region of Swansea, Cardiff and Newport. And then these rivers mark the valleys of South Wales, the river valleys of South Wales, in which so much uh, coal mining activity uh, was continued during uh, the modern period. Indeed, long considered one of the cradles of the British Industrial Revolution, the region witnessed considerable industrial development from the mid-18th century onwards, uh, so that it became one of the powerhouses of the British economy during the 19th century. Developments in copper and iron production from the 18th century were surpassed in extent and importance by the breakneck development of the coal industry in the second half of the 19th century. Thousands and thousands of people poured into the region, uh, especially in the few decades before the First World War, so that the region possessed roughly one and a half million inhabitants uh, by about the 1910s, 1920s. But while one of the iconic industries of the British Industrial Revolution, coal mining was also marked by high levels of accident, disability and occupational disease, and particularly in South Wales relative to other coal fields, not to mention environmental degradation and unwholesome living conditions. Now there's no such thing as a typical South Wales mining community or indeed a typical uh, South Wales valley. Uh, but this, uh, the Romza valley, is perhaps the most iconic, at least, And this photo gives an indication of the general character of mining communities in the South Wales Valleys, with, as you can see, um, 
the river, of course, but also then the rail links or other kinds of transport links along the bottom of the valley. Collieries tended to be situated again in the bottom of the valley. And then workers' houses in these characteristic terraces um, crammed into the valley as best they could, uh, usually in these kinds of switchback, uh, zigzagging formations of terraced houses. It's very, very characteristic uh, of industrial South Wales. More than that, it might be argued that coalfields are places apart, with their own distinctive work experiences, cultural practices, social relations, and, I hope to show, patterns of medical provision. By the mid-19th century, the South Wales coalfield had a relatively simple mixed economy of care that was also characterised by a relative paucity of provision. In the first place, of course, South Wales, similar to all other parts of England and Wales at that time, possessed a poor law medical system that, in theory at least, was subject to central scrutiny and direction. But historians of the poor law system, of course, after 1834, have long recognised uh, that the local implementation of central policy varied enormously from one place to another, and that systems of poor relief differed in character and scale across uh, England and Wales, and, of course, uh, into Scotland and Ireland. The defining characteristics of poor relief in South Wales uh, in the mid to late 19th century were on the one hand relatively high levels of pauperism and on the other an overwhelming use of outdoor rather than indoor relief as the means to assist paupers. The vast majority of paupers in South Wales, very, very clear, were relieved in their own homes. So by the 1890s, for example, the poor law inspector for Wales estimated that out-relief accounted for 90% of all relief uh, dispensed by poor law guardians in South Wales. So out-relief is very much the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly majority experience. Now this is partially the product of the cultural belief that was evident in Wales from the mid-18th century onwards, and that continued to be strong throughout the 19th century, and perhaps into the 20th, that Welsh families were reluctant to admit sick family members into institutions, and preferred to retain them within, the, within their own homes to care for them themselves. Uh, something that John mentioned uh, yesterday. And we can see this very, very clearly in different statements and different kinds of arguments being articulated, certainly in the early part of the 19th century and, as I say, into the, later on into the century as well. And I think these kinds of beliefs were also held by the guardians themselves, of course, who, in addition, were reluctant to add to the cost of the rates, uh, with the effect that the poor law system in South Wales tended to be, uh, the institutional poor law system tended to be relatively underdeveloped um, when compared with other regions of uh, Britain. Furthermore, I think it's evident that the relative paucity of institutional provision in South Wales, uh, or, or public um, institutional provision, was not made good either by employer paternalism or philanthropic activity. Examples of uh, employer paternalism can be discerned, and some companies did indeed develop systems of medical and welfare provision for their workers. At the most basic level, uh, most employers in the coal, iron and steel industries in South Wales arranged for surgeons to attend their workers and their families. These were largely funded from the compulsory deductions from wages, uh, work, workers' weekly wages, but did on, uh, on occasion have a more paternalistic character as employers offered financial support to these arrangements. So some employers made a loss uh, on the uh, medical systems that they'd set up for their workers. So there was an, a paternalistic character there. It wasn't just a self-help kind of uh, arrangement. More importantly than this, though, certain companies developed or offered additional welfare schemes, such as sick benefits, of course, 
uh, letters of admission to voluntary hospitals, artificial limbs or other surgical appliances and equipment to injured workers, pensions for loyal old workers, and they needed to be loyal old workers if the, uh, the employer was to grant one of these pensions, or else encouraged and supported the formation of friendly societies. Interestingly, I think we can draw a distinction within South Wales between, on the one hand, metallurgical companies in the iron and steel and other metal industries, on the one hand, and on the other, coal employers. Um, it was the metallurgical companies that developed more generous and varied welfare schemes. And I think there's lots of different reasons for this. Perhaps there's the difference between, on the one hand, the capital-intensive metalworks and the labour-intensive coal concerns, um, there's the greater premium on skilled labour in metallurgical industries. There's the different patterns of ownership in the coal and metallurgical, metallurgical industries. And lastly, the greater risk and hence more expensive cost of injury, disablement and illness in the coal industry. It's indicative, for example, that one of the most notable examples of company welfare provision uh, in the region during the mid-19th century was that provided by the Dowlais Iron Company. Um, which consisted of a sick fund, a medical scheme, educational provision for workers' children, uh, you know, a number of schools set up uh, in the Dowlais area, uh, housing clubs uh, and a workmen's institute, all of which was run at a loss uh, to the company, despite you know, the contributions that workers would have been making to try to fund those schemes. And then into the 20th century, it's Alfred Mons Nickel Works in the Swansea Valley, another metallurgical concern that possessed the most comprehensive and generous welfare scheme of any employer in the region. Uh, Mond, of course, became very famous in the wake of the 1926 uh, general strike in core lockout for his attempts to try to work with trade unions uh, to offer a different kind of version of industrial relations. One notable example in the coal industry is offered by William Thomas Lewis, Lord, later Lord Merthyr of St. Henneth, uh, somebody who the Webbs described as the best-hated man in South Wales. Uh, and, you know, he had some competition in that. Uh, in that. But his, de his example demonstrates that medical need was not necessarily the spur for provision on the part of employers in the region. Lewis was the most prominent coal owner in South Wales, at least until 1898, and a very powerful figure in the, political, uh, in the industrial politics of the region. He was a conservative, an Anglican, and militantly anti-trade unionism. Uh, anti-trade unions. He was the main mover behind the South Wales and Monmouthshire Miners Permanent Providence Society, established in 1881. Now, this society, uh, similar to other such organisations in other coal fields, paid injury benefits to miners and death benefits to their families, and was funded both by weekly contributions from the men themselves, but also, where employers chose to do so, a 25% uh, contribution from um, employers also, 25% of the contributions made by their workers, as I say, where the employers decided to do that. So he's the main mover behind this organisation set up to uh, assist injured miners and the families of miners who were killed. Upon his knighthood in 1886, Lewis donated the 35,000 pennies he'd he received from the 35,000 members of this society towards the fund established to erect the Merthyr Gen General Hospital, which came to fruition in 1888. So here's uh, Lewis... <coughs> um, by his statue, of course, in front of the Merthyr General Hospital. 
Now, these two examples, these two connected examples, illustrate the social, industrial and political aims behind employer paternalism in South Wales. That permanent providence society was established in response to the Employers' Liability Act of 1880, and despite the opposition of workers' representatives, and could be seen as an anti-statist measure intended to discourage further statutory intervention, an attempt to undermine the appeal of trades unions, trade unionism, and as a means to lessen the financial burden of injuries and deaths to employers, because workers who joined the society effectively opted out of any coverage provided by the legislation. Uh, in relation to the other example of uh, paternalism, that donation to the hospital, that was motivated by, among, among other considerations, a desire to create a favourable public persona in the region, so that Lewis, and later his son, might pursue a political career and in the Conservative interest. So just a little while later, for example, uh, Herbert Lewis, uh, William Thomas Lewis's son, campaigning in the Merthyr Borough election, lists the different examples of paternalistic activity that his family had been involved in as a means to try to appeal to the electors and gain votes. And you can see support for friendly societies, support for cottage hospitals, uh, the endowment of beds for colleagues in the Merthyr Hospital as those examples that he's setting out there to try to win supporting election. If I remember correctly, this didn't succeed. Um, he didn't stand as a Conservative, that would have been suicidal, but everybody knew that despite being an independent, he was a Conservative, and so uh, he didn't succeed. Nevertheless, despite being able to point to certain examples of employer paternalism, uh, albeit for many more reasons than for the sake of medical provision alone, what is more notable is the large number of employers who did not make any paternalistic provision for their workers uh, whatsoever. And again, this is most evident in the coal industry uh, rather than the metallurgical uh, industries. At the end of the century, critics of employers in the region pointed out their failure to invest adequately in social provision for the communities in which their collieries were situated. And such criticisms, in the coal industry at least, were only to increase in volume uh, in the early decades of the 20th century. Most notably, of course, uh, in the investigations carried out by the Sankey Commission uh, just after the First World War. <coughs> as far as philanthropy is concerned, the coalfield was similarly characterised by a marked paucity in provision. In a sense, this was the product of the particular nature of coal communities in South Wales. In the majority of cases, the colliery villages of South Wales were mono-industrial communities with a very simple social structure in which workers formed the overwhelming majority of inhabitants and were joined only by a very small number of shopkeepers, uh, a few individual teachers, ministers and doctors, and of course then the colliery officials and managers. In certain urban districts in the central part of the coalfield, for example, something like 50 to 65% of all working males were miners, and then another, you know, other kinds of workers would have made up a significant proportion of the rest. In that kind of context, with the absence of a large elite or a sizable or self-confident middle class, there were too little resources and too little desire uh, in these communities to sustain significant philanthropic activity. In 1851, for example, the Morning Chronicle uh, correspondent who visited South Wales noted that Merthyr Tidville, the largest town in the coalfield with a population of almost 50,000 people uh, by that time, 
possessed no almshouses, no endowed charities, no hospitals, despite the massive fortunes that had carried on, uh, the massive fortunes that had been accumulated in the town. Later on in the century, poor law inspectors for South Wales also noted the absence of the better of classes uh, from Kofi communities and the consequent lack of charitable activity. Such inspectors also attributed the high levels of outdoor relief to the absence of medical institutions and the resultant need for the sick poor to be treated in their homes. But a crucial change in the mixed economy of care in South Wales develops there in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it can be found in the increasing provision made in the voluntary sphere by the labour movement, or else the increasing power and even control exercised by that labour movement in those areas of provision that it did not itself initiate. In a sense, the labour movement attempted to fill the vacuum created by the relative absence of paternalist or philanthropic provision, and set about doing so in its own particular ways and according to its own needs and values. By the interwar period, many coal communities in South Wales had become proletarian communities in which workers and their representatives held and exercised power. This increasing power is most evident, perhaps, in that most significant and distinctive form of medical provision in South Wales, workers' medical schemes, more usually described in the region as medical aid societies. <coughs> These emerged from the systems of medical attendance created by employers back in the early 19th century, whereby surgeons had been appointed... Um, and deductions made from workers' wages to pay their salaries. The members of these organisations were often aggrieved that they did not retain the power to appoint or dismiss their own doctors, um, for example, uh, but also their lack of control over the financial uh, workings of those schemes. And efforts were made by the members of these schemes throughout the, cent throughout the century to wrest control back from their employers. The balance of power shifted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, particularly in certain communities in Monmouthshire, the county of Monmouthshire, where the companies in control had started out as iron, uh, iron companies and had diversified into coal production and steel production as, uh, as the second half of the 19th century had gone on. These companies, I think, more so than purely coal companies in other parts of the coal field, were more inclined to relinquish uh, control that they'd exercised and, many, and in many notable um, instances, committees of workers came to control these funds. In these instances, doctors came to be employed on set salaries, rather than receive all the money accumulated from the weekly deductions from workers' wages. And the excess funds were then utilised to expand the range of services available to members. Uh, so the Tradiga Workmen's Medical Aid Society, of course, that is the most uh, famous and perhaps one of the best examples of these kinds of uh, robust and comprehensive schemes that emerged in many communities in the South Wales Coalfield at that time. Initially confined to the miners and steelworkers of the Tradiga Iron and Coal Company and their wives and children, this scheme was extended to cover aged members of the community, workers in other collieries and workplaces in the district, and then other classes of uh, people within the population, such as teachers, shopkeepers, and other individuals uh, in the town and district. During the interwar period, for example, the unemployed, who, who, were, you know, who were a fair number of them, about 2,000, um, they were retained in membership uh, by the society during that difficult period. Such was its comprehensive nature that by the 1940s, of the 24,000 inhabitants of the town of Tradiga, 22,800 were members of this scheme. Uh, so, you know, there's some sort of element of universality here uh, within this scheme in this particular location. 
By that time, workers paid two pence in each pound of their wages, while so-called town subscribers paid 18 shillings a year to gain eligibility. And for such eligibility, they gained access to a, a whole range of different services. This is just some sort of summary of the types of services available to the members of this particular scheme. And that kind of example can be replicated by other communities uh, in close proximity to Shadiga, places like Blaenavon, Evervale, uh, very, very notable, uh, and other parts of South Wales. As one member of the Tradiga scheme commented in 1946, after the NHS bill had been passed, it's the only scheme in the country that gives you all the National Health Service sets out, and more. Not all medical schemes in South Wales are quite as comprehensive as this, did not have quite the same range of services, but nevertheless we are able to note a large number of these very well-developed, comprehensive, mutualist medical schemes that went much further, perhaps, than similar kinds of organisations in other parts of Britain. Indeed, the British Medical Association considered South Wales to be a problematic region uh, because of the extent of lay control that was being exercised over its members there. Another area of medical provision in which the Labour movement exercised a significant and increasing measure of control was in the large number of small cottage hospitals that came to be established in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, just set a, a list of uh, these kinds of institutions founded in the coal fields uh, during these decades. Now the balance between workers' representatives and individuals' representing other constituencies varied from one institution to another, of course. Uh, but again, what is most marked about these institutions in South Wales is the extent of workers' influence and indeed control. We can see examples here where employers played a significant role. So in places like uh, Merthyr Tidville and then Aberdeer, the two hospitals set up there in the 1860s and 1870s, very, very small institutions, but they're set up in both cases by the wives of the major industrialists in the town. Um, you know, sort of a, a regional example of that uh, kind of lady bountiful kind of uh, activity. Uh, similarly then, a little later, you know, you can see this in 1909, the Powell Dufferin Company's Workmen's Cottage Hospital. So again, the company is one of the main movers behind that particular institution. Uh, Powell Dufferin comes to be a hated company but, uh, in the interwar period. Um, so we can see certain examples. Another one is Pentoin in the Rhone Valley. That one was set up by uh, William Jenkins, the manager, the general manager of the Ocean Coal Company, upon his retirement. This was his gift back to the community. He set up a, a hospital. Um, <clears throat> these are not typical, though. Far more representative are the institutions at other places in Porth, Mountain Ash, Pontypool, Avabargoid, Avatasug and many other communities listed here, where employers made initial donations of money or land or committed themselves to regular subscriptions or, or donations but did not otherwise play an important role in the administration of these institutions. In such cases, the vast majority of the funding came from the workforce in the locality, which also then elected the overwhelming majority of uh, members of the management boards and so retain control of these hospitals. Slightly differently, hospitals founded in uh, Blaenavon, um, here, 
and then Ebervale and Tredegar in the early part of the 20th century. These were actually set up by the workmen's medical schemes uh, in those locations. So in addition to the sort of general practitioner and other kinds of services that they'd established, they also went on uh, to establish their own cottage hospitals connected to their schemes. <clears throat> they did receive some support from their employers, but overwhelmingly the funding and then the control was retained by uh, workers themselves. The one exception here in this kind of regard is uh, Bliner in 1911, the Bliner District uh, Hospital. That, of course, was at the height of the so-called Great Unrest, that tumultuous period of industrial unrest which was particularly marked in South Wales. And then in Bliner, so-called firebrands decided that they did not want anything to do with their employers and they did not wish to receive any financial assistance from them whatsoever and so funded the hospital entirely themselves without any contribution from their employers whatsoever. In a way, there was no need for Saturday funds or workmen's contributory schemes uh, for these hospitals, as there were with so many other voluntary hospitals across Britain. So the voluntary hospitals in the South Wales Coalfield were not characterised by the same diversity of funding or representation as similar institutions in other parts of Britain, but instead tended to be funded and controlled overwhelmingly by workers and their representatives. The hospitals were self-consciously miners' hospitals, particularly in the case of the Caerphilly and District Miners' Hospital, as there in the name. Um, and they obviously had a perception of themselves as being different to hospitals elsewhere. The strongly mutualist motivation for hospital provision in the region is most clearly illustrated by an assertion in the annual report of the Mountain Ash Hospital uh, that the institution should be renamed the Temple of Equal Chance. Another important area in which the growing influence of the labour movement is evident, and which similarly served to influence the distinct nature of the mixed economy of care, was public provision. Poor law inspectors for Wales noted the election of female and working class guardians to boards uh, from the 1890s onwards and the effect that these had on the administration of the system. Um, oh. Not only were improvements made for the sick, the old and the young within the system as a result of the influence of these um, female and um, working class guardians, um, but medical services more generally also went considerable improvement in the last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century with improvements to wards and then the erection of new infirmaries. Such was the improvement that the poor law inspector for Wales was able to comment just before the First World War. What were a few years ago large workhouses for the more or less able-bodied have become to a great extent infirmaries for the acute and chronic sick. This influence on public bodies became more pronounced into the 20th century as county councils and urban district councils came to provide an increasing range of public health and medical services. Trade unions, or more usually trades and labour councils, uh, took a keen interest in the welfare work of district and county councils and selected and, and sponsored representatives for public office that would act in the labour interest. These worked to develop and expand public provision and were able to defend such services or even extend them even in the teeth of considerable financial pressures during the interwar economic depression. Uh, I think I'm running out of time now, so I'd better draw this here a close. Um, <clears throat> Therefore, I think what we can see in South Wales then is a very distinctive mixed economy of care in which philanthropy and paternalism was stunted and poor law institutional provision was meagre and dwarfed in importance by outdoor relief. Into this absence of provision came the labour movement, characterised by working-class self-help and mutualism from below, 
and later public provision from above by local authorities that were to a greater or lesser degree uh, controlled by the Labour Party or else other representatives of the local, local Labour movement. Um, Therefore, the particular social, economic, political and cultural context of the South Wales Coalfield produced a particular version of the mixed economy of care, but, that, but one perhaps that was not able to meet the needs of Coalfield communities, either in the sense of the amount of provision made, or indeed in the provision of specialised services, despite the massive medical needs that were created by industrialisation in the region. In a sense, this is perhaps characteristic of coal mining communities, both in the past and in the developing world in the present. Economic historians have pointed out that regions dependent on primary extractive industries do not tend to experience any diversification of economic activity into such things as manufacturing or other kinds of activities, but instead remain geared solely towards the export of their products to other places. In such places, communities retain, remain simple, undifferentiated and homogenous, perhaps, without the facilities, structures or institutions to deal with more complex tasks or functions. Such an idea might also be applied usefully to the medical sphere. And utilising Julian Tudor Hart's idea of the inverse care law, it might be argued that not only are such regions characterised by a paucity of provision in inverse proportion to the massive need that existed uh, within such places, but also that the character of medical provision tends to be basic in character and lacking in the specialised services and skills that came to characterise medicine and public health in other regions in the modern period. Thank you very much.